Good morning, Bread of Life. Um, it's good to be back preaching again. It's been five weeks, um, and I'm thankful to all the people who helped out, who did a lot, uh, the vestry, to cover time for me, for Amy to be away from church, to catch up on family life. Most of you I can see, or a lot of you who have enjoyed the sermons of my friend Michael Rhodes, and if you haven't, go back and listen to them. Michael's amazing. He's a jewel of a friend. And so as we come back to this pattern of my preaching, I'm sorry for those of you who are disappointed be ready for a little less passion. Uh, Michael's incredible, but I think he preaches in his sleep. So this will be kind of more um, along the, re the regular level of preaching. I want to think as we start today about um, my childhood. I was um, born right after the moon landing. And so then there's this um, outflowing of television shows and movies, sci-fi. So you get Star Trek and then Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica and... Um, uh, uh, these others that, that came out in, in celebrating and imagining life in space and um, living in these worlds. And one of the things I always notice that always comes back to my memory is the nature of meals in their life and the way they ate. There's actually very little food in the shows I've named. They talk about meals. If they do sit at meals, they tend to drink, but they don't actually eat much food. You get these scenes both in like Battlestar Galactica and you get it in Star Trek where they eat space food. And so you have these um, space cubes, food cubes, that they would eat. And you can find these in like old Star Trek videos, or if you're a Trekkie, you'd know what I'm talking about. If you don't, um, think of multicolored blocks of food that are anything but appetizing. They don't even look like candy. They look like Play-Doh. They're terrible. And what strikes me, especially as I grow older, and I think about the fact that I finished a meal and I'm always looking to the next one, that our bodies are made with these um, yearning appetites, is that their lives aren't driven by food. They've kind of grown past um, good-tasting, beautiful, succulent uh, fragrances of food in the house, as if in the future we evolve past the need for food. What a sad world um, this sci-fi world gave us in that time. Uh, but I want to suggest the opposite. I mean, the, we know for a fact that we live by food. We live by meals. We live by needing to eat over and over again. And I say that to a bunch of Ithacans who know that far better than I do. And I say it simply because, and to remind us that scripture got there first. I mean, scripture is woven through with food and meals. Uh, the, the first opportunity Adam and Eve are given this breadth of life and food they can eat in the garden with one area off limits. And they choose that area, which is this opening up, our ability to gauge and guard and manage our appetites in the face of God's order in the world is a struggle already. And so we come to find our human nature that we don't eat like we want to eat and should eat, that we don't manage our appetites like we should. Cain and Abel, in the next story, they come and they bring two kinds of offering. Food becomes this uh, way of honoring God of finding differences in society. Esau that makes that red, red, bloody stew for his dad Isaac that his father loves, divides the brothers, Joseph in the famine, a manna, quail in the wilderness, all the festivals and the meals that are commanded for the sacrifice of animals, right? So you, there's this constant Elijah in the wilderness with the widow's oil and daily bread. And you have this uh, food and famine and certain kinds of eating that are shaping and teaching and molding God's people. And I want to bring that before us through the book of Deuteronomy today. Uh, this is the focus of Deuteronomy is around these structured meals. 
that probably hopes to slow down if you're not familiar with the Old Testament law. I've studied it for years and there's lots I don't know. Uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy share a whole number of laws. There's a holiness code, a covenant code in Exodus, and then the Deuteronomy code. That's often how they're dif differed. And um, they have different emphases. They have different ways of expressing the laws. Sometimes they have different penalties or different time frames. Uh, it can get kind of complex. One major difference is the festival and feasting portion of Deuteronomy. It's not just that it's just there, which it is in Leviticus. It's that it frames the whole book. It's a book about feasting and joy. And so I've um, had, we had a reading today from Deuteronomy 8. So I added a second one uh, for our New Testament reading so that we can get into this festival kind of mentality, the ethos of Deuteronomy. And I want to um, frame that within three kind of observations about food and about how scripture and how God uses food in our lives to teach us. Uh, the first is this, it comes from Deuteronomy 8, that food is an agent of memory, of um, bringing to mind those things we're prone to forget. And so if you listen to Deuteronomy chapter 8, it's those famous words, Jesus quotes them in the desert, uh, when he's tempted by Satan. And Moses says to them, when you come into the land, um, you're going to look back and I want you to remember the manna that I fed you by 40 years to test you and discipline you. The, the language is a father tests his child. God disciplined Israel so that they might remember that God led them out of Egypt. And then he says, and I fed you with a food that you did not know so that you might know that man does not live by bread alone about every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Uh, five times, four times in this passage, it says, I've done this so that you might know. Twice it says, so that you might remember. And then three times, and you get to the later part of the chapter we didn't read, verses 11 and following, so that you won't forget. Uh, memory and knowledge are at the core of, of the meals, the way Israel's going to eat. And this is the first food passage in Deuteronomy that's talking about their eating. And the first thing you remember, when you get in that land and you start eating plenty, that's what Deuteronomy says, you're going to have food plentiful, you need to remember that it's not yours, that it's a gift. That I brought you from Egypt, it's mine, and I put it in your mouths and I put it in your fields. Uh, at the end of the chapter, we don't read this either, it says, lest um, you get into the land and you say, my hand and the strength of my wealth, uh, my, the strength of my hand gave me this wealth. But you shall remember that it's the Lord your God who gave you wealth. So food for God, he wants us to sit and remember with gratitude what he's given to us. It says in the Gospels when Jesus sat down with his disciples in the Last Supper, and when he'd given thanks, he broke the bread. And when he'd given thanks, he took the cup. The food, if we give thanks around each of our meals, is that moment in the day where we pause and we remember it's all gifts. Now, if you're like me, you're um, very prone, easily prone to be discontent. It's the natural default setting for most of us, especially for me. It's a little hotter than I want today. It's a little too cloudy. It's a little too cold. The meal wasn't quite perfect. The service wasn't great. That movie wasn't quite everything I hoped it would be. I'm not as smart as I would like to be. I'm not as tall as I would like to be. My car is not as nice as I would like. And we can just live in this constant sense of discontentment, of envy. And we lose the habit of gratitude, of constant thankfulness. And God's trying to reverse that with his people. To remember, look, when you get there, 
Tell stories, break bread, and remember that it's all a gift. There's ancient habits that are formed in the church, practices I learned in spiritual retreats, Ignatian spirituality, of naming things specifically every day, many times a day, out of gratitude. Thanks, Lord, for my food. Thanks for my life, for the breath I just breathed. Thanks for the day. Thanks, it's night. Thanks for the cold. Thanks for a cloudy day. Thanks for my spouse, my friends. Thanks for my church. Thanks for the books I read. Thanks for my experiences in life. Thanks for the garden. Thanks for the sounds I hear. Thanks for my taste buds. I mean, you can imagine if we disciplined ourselves by gratitude how different of a people we would be. Uh, Grateful people are happy people. Grateful people are generous and loving people. Grateful people are great to be around because they serve. Because rather than looking inward to self-satisfaction, their lives flow outward. So food teaches us to be thankful. God is telling the Israelites in a time of suffering like coronavirus, a time of waiting, when you get the plenty back, be thankful again. Mark your lives with moments of gratitude. Uh, Two, so food teaches us to be thankful, to remember where the gifts come from, memory and gratitude. Uh, Point two, a food renews joy in our community, in our midst. This is a second reading, Deuteronomy chapter 14. And there's uh, the law spelling out here uh, three tithes. So there's triennial tithes every three years. And then three times a year, you bring these offerings as a tithe. And they don't go to the king as in other ancient um, nations. It's pretty interesting. So you come, and when you come and you bring that tithe, God says, eat and rejoice. Be joyful when you eat. I mean, God really wants them to eat. He says, um, if the place is too far, it's a beautiful law. This could mean that most people did this. If the place is too far, trade what you've raised, your animals, your crops, your, your seed, for silver, And then buy whatever your heart desires and eat and be joyful. Whatever you want, beer, strong drink, it says, wine, food. Man, I want you to be joyful. God's not feeding you with manna anymore. When it comes in, go and rejoice and be a joyful people. The word here, rejoice, this is one of those places that you get a difference with Exodus and Leviticus. Believe it or not, that word rejoice isn't used in Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or or Genesis. It's not commanded of the people, only in Deuteronomy, a book sometimes called a book of joy. I know that sounds counterintuitive to anybody who thinks, oh, it's law. Deuteronomy is a book of feasting and joy. In fact, that word is only used more in the whole Testament in Psalms, a book that's three times as long. So you've got, and there's actually this whole conversation that goes on between Psalms and Deuteronomy. How does the Psalms begin? Blessed is the man who meditates on your Torah, your law, day and night. Just as you're supposed to meditate on that Torah in Deuteronomy 6. There's this inner relationship, and both want us to be people who rejoice. But what does that mean? Well, it's not merriment. It's not inner um, happiness. Uh, During the third week of Advent each year, we have a day of joy. And I preach on this um, in one way or another usually. Joy isn't like this little happy, fluttery emotion. It's not non-emotional, but it orients around a community bound together, right? Sharing food and rejoicing around the Lord who brought them together and fed them. The, The central object of the joy is the giver. 
you can see how gratitude in um, the first teaching lesson of food opens up into the second one. Man, be joyful. Man, get together and say, God reigns. If there's a difference between gratitude and joy, in this case, it's this. Gratitude is thanks for the gifts. Joy is rejoicing in the victory of our God and King. If you see that, think of Psalm 95. We read that every, it's, in, in, it's called the Venite in morning prayer. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout for joy to the God of our salvation. And salvation's a victory word. He's beaten the kings. He's beaten evil. He's beaten death. He beats other gods. And so rejoicing in the Psalms or in Deuteronomy is about the victory of the Lord. If I am downcast, if I am put down by my enemies, if I am suffering under evil, I may rejoice because I know my God has the final victory. Joy is always set on the future. It's always set on the culmination of God's judgment. He has promised to come again and judge the world with glory. And that's our hope. We rejoice when we eat together. Not simply in the food. That will wane. It's when the food fills us and we're satisfied. Deuteronomy says, eat until you're really full and satisfied. Then you joyfully rejoice. And you think, man, God reigns. And we bring together our rejoicing. Notice this way, who gets to eat at this meal of rejoicing? When you come, it says, the, the, the Levite should be with you, and the widow, and the sojourner, the refugee, uh, the slave, the poor, um, the widow, uh, the, the, the people in your midst on economic borderlines. Uh, this is such an interesting image, isn't it, that we don't rejoice alone. I know, I think of watching my friend Michael preach. I, I always would like to welcome church in this joyful moment. I just, that personality, it's difficult. But when I watch the fellow saints, I watch you sing and I watch you rejoice, my heart lifts. I learn joy in community. It's so naturally a kind of contagious, like laughter. Joy comes from being together. And so that's why the command is rejoice together. It's a plural. And we're meant to gather not just with friends, but with the rich, the poor, the weak, the black, the white, the brown. There's supposed to be extraordinary diversity. And we rejoice that God makes us one in a meal. Food teaches us joy. It teaches us to be grateful. And third, in these passages, joy is an economic balance. It's an economic healer. I've said this in many different ways. Deuteronomy 14 to 16 is full of passages like this. And chapter 22 and when you go over your crops, you shall not go over them again. You shall leave the extra grapes and gleanings and the, what has fallen for the poor, the sojourner, the widow. Now in the triennial tithe, three times a year, every three years, every three feasts that you gather, so there's six times a year, seven, when you get together, all those people have to come and no one will be empty-handed, all get to rejoice. If the poor has nothing, he gets to buy what his heart desires. So different than charity, isn't it? This kind of economic balancing. I mean, I can give money to the poor. I can show up at the grocery store. Would you like to donate $5 to this gift? And we call that charity. The word charity really comes from caritas, love. And often we don't feel any love when we give these things. We don't feel the unity that I'm with you. I'm honoring and respecting and delighting in your humanity. But that's what's happening in this feast. It's not simply that I give some gift. It's that there's mutual joy in which I share the abundance of my life because I'm thankful, because we have a common victor as a king, and because he's made us one.
economic restoration. We can't do this in America in our capitalism and our democracy, but it can influence the way the church lives in so many dimensions that if we came together and rejoiced in what we had, that we would welcome to our table those most in need. That's the vision God gives for his church. I want to turn now to just this brief thought about Jesus. It should be obvious when he comes in in the Gospels and, and he goes through the wilderness and he does not give in to the temptations of, the, of Satan, of the serpent, to turn bread, stones into bread, that he has mastered the law of Deuteronomy for food. He does not eat what he does not need. He is grateful for what he has. And so he's able to be our Lord. And he gathers with sinners around a table, Deuteronomy 14 and 16. The outcasts, the ones that people don't gather, he invites to his table and he laughs and he rejoices and he shares with them. Jesus is accused by the Pharisees for having feasts with the unwanted of culture. And then he breaks a meal with us to make us one. Are you not one loaf and one body, Paul says? And he took the bread and he broke it. And we eat into him. Friends, when we share a meal together as Christians, we become one because we grow into Christ. We eat into his body, this beautiful image. And then we become those people who welcome the poor, the weak, the needy, the outcast, the sojourner, the refugee to our table. Food should still shape Christians in that way. We should be people animated by our meals. Now, as I end, I say all that, and you're thinking to yourself, does he know that we're in this pandemic and we can't eat together? I do. I recognize that. So I draw our attention back to the lesson of the wilderness with the manna. Forty years they waited for their meals. Forty years they waited to be in the land and eat together, and they ate manna. What is it? The stuff of flake from the ground that seemed to maybe form and do. They had this meal that was bland, that was every day, that had no variety, and they waited. And God said, I tested you so that you might know. Couldn't we, Christians, couldn't we think together about this waiting period where we long to be with one another, how much shorter it'll be than 40 years, and that when we come back, we would be like the Israelites, and we would know that these gifts are from God that we live not by bread, but by every word that comes from his mouth. And that when we share that table again, that we will do so in gratitude, with community-wide joy, and with generosity that heals the weak and the needy in our midst. Amen.